More cowbell. <laughs> that's still it's funny a, on, on a Wicked, funny joke, right? That's still yeah, that's still solid gold, Jeremy. <laughs> Thank you. It's funny. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about common, inexpensive, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I'm just happy to be here. I'm your co-host, Jeremy Ruggles, and I'm a behavioral technician. Like, for real, though. Whoa. (laughs) Dropping some real knowledge on the people. Continuing to peel back the curtains, season two style. Yeah. I'm Peter Cook. And I'm just a commoner. <laughs> I'm Greg Kaz, Brooklyn-based DJ, nerd, connoisseur, known to be called a walking encyclopedia, though I often dispute that fact, and who likes to talk about records a lot. Greg, you're a running encyclopedia sometimes, Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and occasionally, when, I, when I'm running late, I have to hitchhike, so, yeah. <laughs> well, nerd or not, you sound like a perfect candidate for this podcast so welcome aboard let's talk about ramsey lewis great we talked to greg a few minutes before starting recording here and his level of knowledge is truly daunting don't let him undersell himself (laughs) (laughs) can confirm so we're talking about ramsey lewis and so the last episode dealt with his big 60s crossover hit album the in crowd yep and it was just uh, that whole period where he had it was himself and what soon became Young Hulk Unlimited, and they had that huge hit. And Ramsey was kind of thought of as like a pop crossover guy. And so now, shoot forward to 1973. It's a whole different lineup. Ramsey is actually two lineups of the trio past his big 60s hit. He is now signed to Columbia. I think this might be his second or third album for Columbia. A lot had happened between that big hit and this album that we're looking at right now. Which is Funky Serenity. Funky Serenity, 1973 on Columbia. This is where, I mean, it's, it's important to note that in the meantime, between the in-crowd and this, L.D. Young and Red Holt, his bassist and drummer, left to form their own successful duo, Young Holt Unlimited. Mm -hmm. And Ramsey replaced them with a new trio consisting of Maurice White on drums. Yes. (laughs) Earth, Wind, and Fire. Yes, because Maurice White was a session drummer at Chess Records in Chicago for much of the 60s. And he played on a whole bunch of records that people don't even realize are him on drums. He plays on Rescue Me by Fontella Bass and a bunch of other stuff like that. He was there in the chess studios. And Ramsey, of course, was on chess. He was on Cadet, actually, which is Cadet being a subsidiary of chess. And hired him for the trio. So it was Ramsey, Maurice... And I believe Morris Jennings. No, Cleveland Eaton. Yeah, Cleveland. Yep. Yep, Cleveland Eaton. And they had that whole great period of the late 60s where he still, Ramsey still kept that kind of like accessible, groovy piano trio sound, but started expanding a little bit, getting a little bit more of that Charles Stephanie psychedelic-ish kind of vibe and also increasing amounts of funk which, you know, you could hear on albums like Maiden Voyage, on which he covers the uh, Herbie Hancock hit. And then there's another album called Another Voyage, which is even funkier. And there's also Mother Nature's Son, which was recorded a week after the White Album came out and consisting entirely of covers of songs off the White Album. That was tr- That is wild. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was Charles Stephanie's idea. He came to Ramsey and said, listen, man, I don't know if you heard this new Beatles White Album that just came out yesterday, but um, <laughs> yeah, but, 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 but it's really, really something else. And I'm writing some arrangements right now. We're going to do a whole album. And Ramsey's like, are you sure? 
trust <laughs> he's like trust me on this <laughs> and and they ended up with mother nature's son yeah so throughout this so throughout this whole period maurice of course is, has got an idea in mind he would lock himself in his hotel room on the road and just draw pictures and write down concepts and ideas and formulate this idea in his head and finally one day in late 69 or early 70 he comes to ramsey says listen ramsey we're touring, we're making money, we're doing good. I'm about to leave and I'm going to start my own band. And Ramsey's like, man, listen, go take a couple aspirin and get some sleep. And like, when you, when you start talking sense, talk to me in the morning. The next day, Maurice comes back. He's like, look, man, I have this idea for a band I want to form. And it's a whole concept and I'm going to leave and I'm giving you my two weeks notice. And Maurice leaves the band. Like a pro. Yeah, yeah like a pro. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh and he leaves and he leaves the band and he forms his own band initially called the Salty Peppers, who actually put out a couple singles under that name. Uh, and then he uh, changed the name to the uh, elements in his Zodiac chart, Earth, Wind and Fire. Right. I wonder whatever became of them. I wonder how that worked out for him. But, uh, <laughs> you know, but uh, so so Earth, Wind and Fire, you know, went from strength to strength, as we well know. And signed to Columbia after a couple of albums on Warner Brothers. And I think that what happened was, upon signing to Columbia, it's not like Ramsey probably needed Maurice's help getting signed to you know Columbia Records, but Maurice probably helped push the issue along with Clive Davis or whatever. Whatever the case may be, now Ramsey is off of Chess Cadet after... 12 years or however long it had been. And now he's on Columbia yep. and uh, making these albums on Columbia with his new drummer, Morris Jennings, you know, which brings us to Funky Serenity in 1973, because I believe before that he had an album called um, uh, Upando Ni Pamoja. He had another one called Solar Wind. He had a couple of albums, just warm up dates for Columbia. And here we have uh, Funky Serenity, which is where, for the first time, not for the first time, he had been playing electric piano since the 60s, you know, that whole late 60s phase. But now he's got a little bit bigger budget than Cadet had been giving him, despite his success. And he's got the ability to kind of like expand his sound a little bit, record in different studios. I'm like running my mouth here. Before I'm we my mouth get here. any further into it, should we? play them uh, a cut here so they can hear what we're about to dig into yeah yeah, uh, yeah so hear how that sound changed up over those years yeah well the opening track is as good a place as any kufanya mapenzi yeah that was my pick for the opening track so let's dive into it and that is i believe swahili for making love as as noted on the back cover yep. yes all right here we go <laughs> sean you don't speak swahili <laughs> I, I speak a f- I speak a few languages, but Swahili is sadly not one of them. <laughs> yeah, beforehand we found out about your Portuguese knowledge, which is awesome. But we'll get into this track. Yeah. All right, here we go.
wow, that has traveled like a thousand years in time, but it's actually been like nine years from where yeah. we left off with the in crowd. With the in crowd, yeah, because by 73, of course, you know, the mid 60s and the early 70s in any genre of music is bound to be, you know, there's music was moving so fast, especially in those days, that nine years was it was an eternity, mm-hmm. and, uh, obviously. And, um, you have you had all this you know funk happening and things were getting really kind of like you know the early seventies was where psychedelia kind of like hit black music with a delay button of a couple of years. So whereas you know in rock you know psychedelia kind of exploded around sixty six sixty seven it was really around seventy one seventy two seventy three that you find these psychedelic kind of textures on a lot of jazz and funk and soul records unless it's the chambers brothers yeah, un- they were on that yeah, tip yeah. <laughs> unless unless it's the chambers brothers also on columbia also a clive davis signing but for the most part you know uh, the, the way the whole soul and jazz worlds were running in 1967 it was you couldn't just i mean norman whitfield pushed the envelope for sure and sly stone was the guy who kind of like dragged r&b kicking and screaming (laughs) into the into the psychedelic era at which point Mm -hmm. at which point then you started getting all of like the self-contained bands and and all of a sudden all these funk bands started appearing with guitarists who are frustrated hendrix fans if you'll notice every funk band has a guitarist who can wail like he's in cream or zeppelin or something Mm -hmm. it was it was just like the thing i've heard funk described as like black psychedelia in the early 70s, which is what it was. And this Ramsey Lewis album reflects all of that in its texture, the way the clavinet and the roads just kind of like are working there. And the, the whole approach is a far cry from the kind of like, let's be honest, slightly supper club-ish vibe that you heard on during the in-crowd era, which, yeah. you know, to, to be fair... He was playing a lot of supper clubs in those days, and that's that's the context from which the in crowd, you know, stormed the pop charts. Yeah, I mean, he was definitely he had that working man vibe as a musician. You know, he knew where his money was coming from and the crowd that he was making music for, and he, yes. you know, he played it yes. well and he did it really well compared to a lot of his you know contemporaries that were making that pop crossover jazz. Like there was, you know, a lot more interesting elements to it than otherwise but but you didn't get a ton of it like adventuring sounds in the uh right. the early mid 60s with him he he knew this he knew what side his bread was buttered on he knew what his audience expected and wanted and he was there to give it to them in the 60s he wasn't trying to challenge them he kind of knew that his core crowd was largely working class not really trying to hear any big highfalutin overarching concepts they just wanted something the hard-working guy who saves up and takes his lady to a nice little jazz club on a friday night or saturday night who works you know on like work fixing the train tracks or driving a sanitation truck saves up his little money takes his lady out he's going to take her to see ramsey lewis they're going to have a good time everybody's happy Mm. that was that was ramsey lewis's whole approach and it worked so well that it ended up crossing over to the pop charts because it turns out that it was a lot more people than just that who could actually get with that sound. He was very in touch with what the streets, so to speak, wanted to hear. Yeah, for sure. Which 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 is still reflected on this record nine years later. I was watching an interview with Ramsey earlier. They were talking specifically about his electric period and like what caused him to spend so much time with this electric sound. Two of the things we talked about was that his contemporary Herbie Hancock went fully electric and experimental before him. And he was very influenced by seeing the music he was making and the reception he was getting to it as well. And the other thing we talked about was when he first started experimenting with different like electric pianos and things, it was mostly overdubbing on his part. And when he tried to do it live, he said he really didn't like the idea of putting a synthesizer on top of his baby grand piano that he's touring with. Yeah. So he just kind of was forced to hire extra musicians to play the material that he was recording 
And then because he had a bigger band with an electric guitarist and a second keyboardist, he decided to just keep going further in, down that territory and exploring what this new electric experimental sound could be. And that's how we end up with this amazing record in 73. Purism was not going to get him anywhere in terms of who he was and his audience. So if he said that he's just going to start playing, you know, Bud Powell extemporizations the whole time, that's not exactly what his crowd wanted to hear anyway. Mm -hmm. And it's and it's not like he wasn't a good he's a he's an excellent musician and he can play a lot of different styles, but he also has a taste for what people want to hear and he knows what they want to hear. And the electric sound was just kind of in the air, you know, it was just something that, of course, like you said, Herbie Hancock and all these other guys were going that down that route. And so there's no reason for him not to, because it was just different textures to explore. Just as long as you're creative with it, you go into it with the right mentality, you'll be fine. Definitely. I was, in an interview I watched with Ramsey, he was talking about his audience participation and how you reference how he it's really important to him to read the audience. And he traces that back all the way to when he was a teenager and playing in churches. And he was taught to read the room and see if people were yeah. actually getting into it or not. So very early on, he learned this ethos of how to read a crowd and give them, you know, what they want to get them going. Well, uh, Maurice White, in his excellent, excellent, unbelievably great book that he wrote not long before he passed away, talks about, at length, about uh, the Ramsey Lewis years. And he, he says a lot about how it was um, backing this incredibly successful jazz musician and the types of gigs that they were playing, the types of discipline that the gig required, and Ramsey's approach you know, his populist approach to like always dress really nice, be really sharp, look your audience in the eye, be ingratiating and all of like the different lessons, you know, of how Ramsey created and maintained and expanded his fan base are all elements that went into the stew that was brewing in Maurice's head that would bear, that would bear fruition in spectacular fashion within a few years. If we just add magic to the performance, a magic show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know what? Yeah, you know, yeah. Ramsey wanted to hire Doug Henning, but couldn't afford him. Now I can. <laughs> you know. Uh, so yeah. So so that's where Maurice got a lot of that whole idea from. We're talking about this record here. I mean, the elephant in the room is that the following album, right after this one is the one that actually blew Ramsey's whole career wide open for the 70s, and which did for his career in the 70s what the in-crowd had done in the 60s. And he did it when Maurice White and Earth Within Fire swooped in and said, Ramsey, we have something for you. Oh. And it turned out to be sun they're not to be sun gods, right. you know, yeah. but that, that, that's another story for another day. Let's just talk about this record for now. Yeah. It, it, uh, and part of the reason I want to talk about funky serenity is I think sun goddess deservedly gets the majority of the attention from this time period, yeah. but funky serenity, I think is almost an equally incredible record and doesn't get nearly as much love. Yeah, it doesn't, you know, it's overshadowed by the massive success of the album that came after it. Yeah. But it's a very, very pleasing and deserving record. And it's got certain things to it. Like you can see that he's still feeling out the market. I mean, with a lot of jazz guys who were interested in making music, but also selling records, you have to look at like, first of all, the covers that they're doing. So there are some covers on this record. He always had his eye on the charts you know, Ramsey always, and a lot, there's there's a ton, a ton, a ton of sort of like funky jazz on a whole bunch of different labels from that era where they're doing covers of whatever's hot on the pop and soul charts at the moment. This is not an exception because here we have If Loving You Is Wrong, I Don't Want to Be Right by uh, Luther Ingram, which is a huge, huge soul ballad, love triangle, cheating song. 
on Stax in 1972. We have Knights in White Satin, the Moody Blues cover. Mm-hmm. And we have Betcha by Golly Wow, the big stylistics hit. And we have Where is the Love by Roberta Flack and Donnie Hathaway. So yeah. there's, uh, there's a definite look at what is happening on the charts. But it's not that big of a deal as long as you can bring something to it. And these versions are pretty good. They set a nice mood. And he knows that his crowd will definitely be into them because they're getting the Ramsey vibe with those new electric piano textures on songs that they're hearing a lot and that they really like. But then on the flip side, we were talking about psychedelia before. There's dreams. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I get a, I get an electric relaxation from dreams. <laughs> yes, for sure. For sure. Foreshadowing. Yeah. yeah, because because dreams is something I believe that he probably put on there it partly just like for himself and for his own artistic purity for lack of I, I hate that word purity especially these days but it's something that like if it pushes the envelope it pushes the envelope if you're going to have an album where you're doing nights in white satin and betcha by golly wow you best be damn sure you can allow yourself a nine and a half minute psychedelic freak out no psych out (laughs) psych out yeah which is which is for me personally kind of the highlight of the record but of course you you would expect me to say that because i like that kind of stuff you know what i mean so but it's for me it really kind of makes the whole record the record would be a lot more hollow without the presence of that on there agreed well i always love commercial records that have something that far out included on them to think that people listening to you know popular music would buy these i guess the white album that we talked about earlier had that as well with revolution nine well you know i um i i've been talking a couple of days ago mark the 50th anniversary of the release of abraxas by santana and that's a record that a lot of people don't realize this that is one of actually the most popular albums on the planet of all time. But a lot of people don't really realize that it's one of those records that sold millions in the Western countries where such things are tabulated. But then it also was widespread in places that they don't even count sales or have like, Oh, this sold X amount of copies in Tunisia and in Tanzania and in Zambia and it sold X amount of copies. Everybody on the island of Trinidad had it. And half of Jamaica had it. I know for a fact everybody in Haiti owned it. And all these countries, all these secondary and third countries, it was just vast. And it's not a commercial record at all. It's got that psychedelic cover. The bulk of it, there's only three songs with vocals on it. And it's like a mix of psychedelic and jazz and Latin and African and rock and blues and Wawanko and Merengue all mixed up together and it sold millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and continues to be popular today. So that was a period of time in which you could do stuff. You could get away with making records like that and still have a ton of people get into it and just take it for what it is. And you could dot it with a few hits just so they can get their bearings. But you could get away with a lot of stuff. And I think having a song like Dreams on this album was just par for the course. I'm keeping this 10-minute space on the album for me. I'll do whatever you want (laughs) elsewhere. But these 10 minutes are mine. I can do what the fuck I want. So that's how it's going to be. Yeah. So I, we got to play I, some of it now, right? Yeah, I, I we think, can't I, not I think we should get into dreams. <laughs> <laughs> we need to hear it. All right, let's play at least a couple minutes of this uh, nine and a half minute epic. This is track two on side B, Dreams.
somewhere around the halfway point in that track, right around the five minute mark, are some sounds that were sampled by a tribe called Quest on their song Electric Relaxation from the Midnight Marauders album of 1993. One of my favorite tribe tracks. I was really excited when I saw that for this album. It's one of the only things mentioned in the Wikipedia article. That's that's the amount of research I did. Uh, but yeah, that's a great track. I, I really that one really caught me when I was checking this out. Yeah, it's 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 the one that like you know most of the album is in a way sort of like what you'd expect from a Ramsey Lewis album, circa seventy three at that point, uh, but a little bit better still. And then he hits you with that, and then you're like, okay, now this album is a serious slam dunk just on the basis of that alone. Not that it's the only great thing on this album, but it's definitely a standout, obviously. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So we mentioned last episode that I'm going to be doing accompanying playlists of similar artists for every episode. And one of the things I included on the playlist for this episode is another Chicago track sampled by Tribe Called Quest, uh, Memory Band by the Rotary Connection. By the Rotary Connection. Yeah, which, which also brings me to a point I wanted to make where it would be really easy for someone not as educated on like the Chicago scene at this point to like, you know, hear a record like the in crowd and then this, and just have no idea how Ramsey Lewis could have made that leap in just a few years. But if you look at the people he was working with, especially at the chess records camp. And then if you also look at the other projects that his band had worked on around this time and beforehand, it kind of makes perfect sense why he made this transition so real quick i'm going to run over a couple of things that cleveland eaton morris jennings and special guest ed green were involved in so we mentioned cleveland eaton is the bassist on this record and i think in a lot of ways it's kind of the the hero of this era of ramsey lewis stuff he was co-producing all the records writing a lot of songs and it seems like he had a pretty big hand in shaping the overall sound of the Ramsey Lewis yeah. group at this point. Cleveland sadly just passed away a couple months ago. Yeah, in July I saw that. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah. He joined the group in 1964 along with Maurice White. And then a couple projects he was also involved in. He was on some uh, stuff by the Soulful Strings, that group that we've yep. mentioned a few times. Uh, he worked with Minnie Ripperton and... Yep. He was on a handful of Terry Collier records as well. He, he's on he's on the Terry Collier records. He's on the Dells records. Mm-hmm. He's he's on a couple of those Rotary Connection records. Uh, Marlena Shaw, all that stuff, all that beautiful late sixties, early seventies cadet stuff. Yeah, he's on he's on pretty much the bulk of that. A lot of stuff produced by the incredible producer Charles Stepney that we've mentioned a handful of times on the show as well. Correct. Yes, absolutely. I'm a huge Stephanie fan. I'm a Stephanie freak, actually, like so many other people. Yeah, totally. I mean, how could you not be once you realize like the, yeah. the level of, of work that he was doing at this point and the amount of the amount of careers that he completely like shaped and changed for the better? Yeah. Like it's it's interesting to think about how much different the face of a lot of popular music would have been without him. You know. Without him, exactly, because he's the one who when when Earth, Wind, and Fire were really ready to like make that big breakthrough when they needed that last push over the hump. It was Charles Stephanie who came in and really guided them through the open our eyes. And that's the way of the world albums. And that's when they became the biggest band in the land. Yep, exactly. We might not really know who earth, wind and fire was. If it wasn't for Charles Stephanie helping shape that sound, who knows? Absolutely. Yeah. Cleveland had a pretty long run with Ramsey over over 10 years like 10 15 years something like that and then afterwards he had an equally long-running association with count basie yeah he was on a lot of those late 70s and 80s pablo releases that count basie was doing and was pretty much he has a, he, he, he has a great solo album on the black jazz label yes. called plenty good eaten mm-hmm. yeah all the cleveland eaton solo material is incredible funk classics not dollar bin mm-hmm. records unfortunately but i mean no no <laughs> maybe, no, maybe you'll get lucky <laughs> maybe maybe you'll get lucky yeah and another guy that played on a lot of the cleveland and solo stuff is bandmate morris jennings from this record who replaced maurice white in 1970 I don't understand. 
<laughs> and then uh, if that you look beautiful, Peter, <laughs> what a hell of a man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then if you look at uh, his list of records, he played on a lot of the same Chicago records that Cleveland was doing. You know, the, like we mentioned the Dells. He also was on some of the same soulful string stuff. He was also in a really cool group called the electronic concept orchestra, yeah. which was a similar vibe to like soulful strings, kind of, you know, like loungy interpretations of songs, but with a much more Moog experimental angle to it. Yeah. And then, um, he also played on the infamous electric mud record. Yes, he did. You have to take into consideration that Chicago during that era had a lot of interesting ensembles happening, you know, because you had the art ensemble of Chicago was there. Yep. And then you had yeah. the, AA, the AACM, the American Association of Advancement of Creative, Creative Musicians, blah, 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 the AACM. And then there was this band called the Pharaohs. Yeah. Another. Who had that great album, you know, another Chicago legend right there. So all of these things were informing each other and often sharing members. Mm-hmm. So... So that was the context that all this came out of. Yep. Sure. And then there's a special guest who's on two tracks on this record. Yeah. Hold on, Sean. Hold on. Hold on. I'm sorry. I, I teased it and you didn't say it. Morris Jennings played on Superfly. Oh. See, I didn't even realize that. I missed that Curtis somehow. Curtis Mayfield yeah. classic. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> that really jumped out at me because that's been... A staple for a long well, time. Well, Cur- Cur- Curtis's working band at that time, his bassist was Lucky Scott, and his drummer was Craig. Mc- uh, his guitarist was Craig McMillan. I I kind of remember, and we had that great percussionist, Master Henry Gibson. I don't remember Morris Jennings being on Superfly because Lucky Scott was such a key member of Curtis's band at the time. I'd have to look that up, but off the top of my head, I'm not a hundred percent on that. But go on. It says that uh, Morris Jennings is the drums on all tracks except the Pusher Man, on which Tyrone McCullen was the drummer, and Master Henry Gibson is percussion. Yep, there you go. That's 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 what I was. Oh, reading. okay, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Go well, again. It says it's the whole Chicago connection. So. Yeah. Anyway, Sean, I'm sorry to interrupt <laughs> you. That was just my. That was like the other thing I know knew about this album. <laughs> the other, uh, and both Cleveland Eaton and Morris Jennings got executive producer credits on this record. And Morris is also uh, attributed drums, congas, and percussion as well. So I'm guessing there was probably a lot of overdubbing and experimenting with different sounds. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. This was, well, they, like I said earlier, they had a little bit more of a budget. Teo Macero, the legend from all those Miles Davis records, mm-hmm. is, list, is listed as the executive producer. And it's kind of the way they list the credits here. You know, it says executive producer Teo Macero on top. And under that, in smaller print, it says with special assistance from Cleveland Eaton and Morris Jennings. And then it says producer Ramsey Lewis. So, right. So it's kind of an interesting breakdown of hierarchy <laughs> Hier- hierarchy there happening there for sure and and, and line of notes by clive j davis right <laughs> which he's on our enemy list <laughs> yeah I, I don't know how where, where do you stand on clive davis greg uh clive davis it's easy to say oh man fuck that guy but at the same time I mean, I will give You're him... right, it is. It is, it, it is. And, <laughs> we've, and, and, uh, we've taken the easy route. <laughs> I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to... I wouldn't call myself a staunch fan of his in the least. I, I, what I would say is that it's a great thing that in the late 60s, he was walking around trying to get hip with a big, fat checkbook and signing up all the people that he did, which includes Santana, Chicago, Earth, Wind and & Fire, uh, and a whole bunch of other people. But then, and then when he started, when he when he got escorted out of the CBS building and got fired, and he quickly bounced back with Arista Records, and I think one of the, if not the first, one of the very first people he signed was Gil Scott Heron and Brian Jackson, right off the bat. Oh, wow. Right, yeah, right off the bat, alongside Barry Manilow, he had Gil Scott Heron, and actually, if you look, I have a whole bunch of great funk and jazz 70s records on Arista. Mm-hmm. A whole bunch. Incredible label. That whole Gil Scott Heron, Brian Jackson catalog, all of that, the Headhunters, 
and all kinds of great funk and jazz records. And he also had the Arista Freedom label right from the beginning, which put out a bunch of like crazy free jazz, yeah. put a bunch of Anthony Braxton and like Julius Hemphill and all kinds of really, really like outre left field stuff that was on Arista. Now, you may or may not give Clive credit for that. Or maybe it was one of his underlings who convinced him, hey, let's open a free jazz subsidiary for Arista. You know, but by the time the 80s rolled around, things definitely changed. I mean, again, I have great Arista records right up until the early 80s. And then around 83, 84, it really just changed completely. And then he got into his Whitney Houston mode. And then the rest is what we know happened, you know, with Aris, with Clive Davis and Arista. But I'll give him credit for, like, putting out – I mean, I have a Bernard Wright, Don Blackman, Linda Williams, all these great records that are on Arista. Plus – and he's stuck with Gil Scott Heron for a long time. Too. Yeah. There's a lot of Gil Scott Heron. So, I mean, again, credit where it's due. It's like he's a bit – he's definitely a businessman and he's definitely got his – eyes on the prize at all times, but he had his moments where he allowed some great records to get made and widely distributed. So I'll give him that. Sure. Having, having, having said that, I'm not a Whitney Houston fan in as much as I think she had a fantastic voice. She was supremely gifted and I hate every single one of her records. (laughs) (laughs) We featured her first uh, recorded her first recorded vocal that was on a material the only re- that, album. That's the only thing by her I actually like. <laughs> Doing a soft machine cover with Archie Shep. How could I not love that? <laughs> <laughs> but, but as far as all of those Arista records, you can keep them. I mean, I've, I've heard them enough. I know what I'm talking I don't like any of them. I just don't. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, and, and, and that's all down to Clive Davis. And a lot of Whitney Houston stands for like, oh, Clive Davis is the devil. She's dead because of him. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But that's kind of like he did some good stuff and some horrible stuff. And that's my take on Clive Davis. Sure. I mean, that's that's been our experience just researching various artists who have worked with him is – you know, when he was on your side, he was a great person to work for. But when you were like, you know, the Chambers brothers, he was a real son of a bitch sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ben Ben Sidron talks about again. Ben Sidron has a couple of great records on Arista. Ben Sidron talks about him in his book, very revealing things that he says about sitting in Clive Davis's office, and Clive Davis is like slamming his fist on the desk, saying, "If you're not trying to be successful, you have no business even being in this building." You know, and so weird stuff like that. And there, there was another. I mean, Clive. I mean, we were talking about Santana before. Clive Davis signed Santana the first time and made all that awesome early music possible. But Clive Davis was also responsible for Santana the second time with Supernatural and Smooth. <laughs> and and the comeback. Do you have a problem with that song? <laughs> uh, yeah, lightning strikes twice. Twice. Well, act, well, actually, the, fir- the the first time you told Santana, look. You guys do what you do, and I'll just sell it. The second time, he's like, listen, leave this with me. I'm going to bring you some stuff. You're going to do it, and you're going to have a shitload of Grammys. And that's exactly what happened. Because no A&R person would ever come up with those early Santana records expecting to sell millions of copies. That was just a special moment in time. Yeah. <laughs> that, would, that would even allow. So like, okay, you guys, you're going to make your second album now. I suggest you do this Tito Puente song. And how about this obscure Peter Green Fleetwood Mac song? Yeah, do that. You know, we're going to sell millions. <laughs> you know, no, no A&R person would have ever said that. Right. But that, that was 1970. But in 1999, Five Davis is like, all right, I'm going to call Wyclef. And I'm going to call Rob Thomas. And I'm going to call this person, and that person. Just trust me on this one this time. Everlast. <laughs> Everlast. You know, <laughs> But to bring us back to the subject at hand, this this is uh, 1973, so he wrote the liner notes for this album and was ushered out the door probably not too long after because it was in, I think, May of 1973 that the whole scandal went down, that he was accused of misappropriating funds 
to pay for his son's bar mitzvah or something, and they, <laughs> and yeah, that that was that was a story. It was taken out of escorted in handcuffs or whatever. I don't even handcuffs, but escorted out of the CBS building, mm. and and so that was one of the last things he did was probably this uh, this Ramsey Lewis album. And I'm sure he was not crazy about dreams, but said, ah, fuck it. I'm getting fired anyway. Well, I don't know. When I, when I read his liner notes, I was like, you know, there's really nothing specific in here. It really just feels like he could have just written this about literally anyone. And I wonder if he even yeah. listened to this record. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he had a lot on his mind right about at that moment. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, yeah. He had a bar mitzvah to plan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, okay. Hey, that's tough. Yeah. It's, like, it's, like, it's like, hey, man. Uh, oh, oh, and I got to write liner notes for Ramsey's new record. Um, 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 and he probably dictated that to his secretary. Yeah, say something about how he like transcends music or some shit. I don't know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's, that's probably what we're looking at here. Although I'm sure that he strongly approved of covering "Where Is the Love" and "Betcha by Golly Wow," which, by the way, are songs that I love, but. They are so covered. I mean, there are these certain songs that if you collect a ton of jazz and soul and funk records from that certain time period, you see them over and over and over again. Everybody was covering these songs. Where is the Love is one. Betcha by Golly Wow is another. And then something like Make It With You by Bread. What was it about that song that every jazz singer, <laughs> every jazz player, every funk band – everybody was covering that song. Yeah. It was just crazy. You know, there's, there's a whole bunch of songs like that that fall into that cat. Don't let me be lonely tonight by James Taylor. Oh my God. Black <laughs> people love that song. You know, one song that I've seen covered a ton in the soul and jazz world that always kind of throws me for a loop is whole lot of love by Led Zeppelin. Yeah. I've seen that covered too. I've definitely seen that covered. Well, there's a Dennis coffee version. Yep. And there's a couple of other versions of that for sure. Are you guys going to play one of these covers? <laughs> well, yeah, we should probably play another song. Okay, here. well, yeah. let, let, let's, let, let's, I mean, uh, we could do Nights in White Satin. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right, I cool. That one. I'll, I'll flip it back. Yeah, that's, we've, we've talked before, we've talked before about how it's really hard to find uh, budget free jazz and psychedelic music. And this is, this record and this song is a prime example of some experimental nuggets hidden within. Yeah. Especially because sure. if you didn't know this was Nights and White Satin, you would never guess it from the intro, which we're about to play. That song threw me for a loop. I didn't expect Knights in White Satin to kick in after that wacky intro. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's like, Led by a violin, no less. Yeah. Yeah. 
not the instrument you would expect or the sound you would expect from Ramsey Lewis or the song really yeah totally a very weird pick we were just talking about like you know the covers that you hear everybody do Nights in White Satin a little bit more of an odd pick for a jazz cover I gotta say well uh, for me I kind of after years of collecting these kinds of records I kind of take it all in stride yeah and if I'm looking at a Ramsey Lewis record and he's doing Nights in White Satin which was a giant hit then I, it doesn't surprise me at all. Mm-hmm. And in con- and in context, let's not, let's not forget the fact that Nights in White Satin uh, was released initially in 67, was a big hit in the UK. And if I'm not mistaken, it had a big second act around 72 or so, where it got oh. a whole new lease, lease on and became a hit all over again around 72. So mm. it was kind of it was kind of in the air at that moment again. I think like it got a whole new FM. I think it charted a second time in the early seventies, which is which explains why Ramsey's doing it. That would make sense too, because that song was part of the birth of progressive rock. So it makes yeah. sense that it would, you know, have a, a second life as Prague was getting much bigger with different. Yeah, artists. I mean, you, you you see a lot of covers of Wider Shade of Pale as well. So. Right. Right. Oh yeah. So playing violin on that track was a guy by the name of Ed Green, who also played violin on the song Dreams, and is listed as percussion throughout the record as well. And he has a couple notable people he's worked with, a person named Dorothy Ashby that we've mentioned before. (laughs) Dorothy Ashby is goddess. (laughs) Yup, the legend for sure. And speaking of goddesses, Ed Green's on a handful of Alice Coltrane records as well. Yeah, correct. Yep. And then also, you know, some of the uh, collaborations you would expect, the Shy Lights, and then he also did some stuff with the Electronic Concept Orchestra along with Morris Jennings. And he also wrote Kufanya Mapenzi, the opening track on this album. Yep. He wrote a couple of things. He wrote a couple of things on this album. Yeah, he also wrote My Love For You, which is another yeah. one of my favorite tracks. Mine as, mine as well. Mine as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's got three E's in his last name, right? Nope, that's the other guy. Yeah. The other Ed Green. Other Ed Green. The other Ed Green is a, is a drummer who played on a lot of Steely Dan and a bunch of LA sessions. Great drummer. Well, the the other other Ed Green is the engineer on the album The In Crowd, <laughs> but they are right. not <laughs> not related in any way. I was trying to figure that out earlier. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Real quick, we presented a question that none of us had a good answer for last episode. That you might have a little more insight on, Greg. Would you say that the concept of jazz and especially soul jazz artists doing covers of pop songs, did that go up in popularity after Ramsey Lewis started getting big? Or was that a thing that was fully in effect before albums like The In Crowd? That's something that kind of, of doing specifically pop covers, yeah, you said? Yeah, I think that Ramsey kind of probably crystallized it. I mean, it's something that would have probably happened anyway. Because if you look at, if you go back in the history of jazz, if you go back to the 40s and 30s even, and you know 30s, 40s, 50s, all those jazz standards that you see on every jazz record that every guy was playing, were all those were all the pop songs of those days. They were written for Hollywood movies and for Broadway plays, but they were basically the white pop songs of those days so whenever you see people doing you don't know what love is i didn't know what time it was body and soul i cover the waterfront all of those were like were basically the pop songs of those days and every those are the songs every jazz cat had to know so moving forward now into the 60s doing covers of pop songs like the in crowd is basically the same thing it's it's really no different it's just this is what is currently popular in pop and let's see what we can do with it is it harmonically interesting can we like does it have a nice vamp we can solo over does it have a nice couple of chord progressions that we can but most importantly is it popular do people recognize it yes all right we're doing you know (laughs) and it's the same and it's the same philosophy that led all the bebop guys to do all those show tunes Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. more or less So I think that Ramsey Lewis, in terms of like contemporary pop, probably, I mean, the year before that, 
there was Ella Fitzgerald doing a cover of Can't Buy Me Love or something, if I'm not mistaken. Sure. You know, so it was something that was kind of already around. But him having such a huge million seller with that particular song definitely kind of like set that in stone. Like this is a thing to do. Yeah. For sure. That's definitely the impression I had as well. So all right, I'm glad we have further insight into that question. Speaking of things we discussed last week, Peter, you had a, a major announcement about our season two push advertising special limited edition items that people can get. You want to give people the quick rundown on that again? Yeah, we'll go through that real quick here. We're doing our patron push, Patreon push. We're offering, if you sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. You can also find that link in our show notes. If you sign up by October 31st, in addition to the normal perks that you get through that, you will receive some items designed by artist Ellen Vandermeide that are exclusive to our kickoff of Season 2. For the dollar tier of Patreon, you get an I'd Buy That for a Dollar Season 2 sticker featuring a cool melting record. Patrons at the $5 tier will receive a Season 2 button with a sparkly record as well as that melting record sticker. And patrons who sign up for the $20 vinyl subscription tier have the option of choosing between one of two t-shirts with designs of both a lava lamp as well as a butterfly LP that are very cool as well as the button and the sticker. If you're not ready to if you're not ready to become a monthly benefactor of I'd buy that for a dollar, you can still support us and get these sweet gifts in exchange. Uh, stickers for people who do not sign up for the Patreon are going for a three dollar donation. The buttons are going for a six dollar donation and t-shirts are a $40 donation. And there's all kinds of info on how to do that on both of our social media sites on Facebook, I'd Buy That Podcast, as well as Instagram, I'd Buy That Podcast. So uh, very cool designs. Very excited to get some I'd Buy That for a Dollar merch. And this is ex- exclusive through the month of October. We'll be shipping things out in November. So Yeah, and to the people who are already Patreons, you're just getting it as a thank you because... We appreciate you doing that. And to the rest of you, get on board. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. If, once you see that stuff, uh, you can check out the images on our uh, social media. You can email I'd buy that podcast at gmail.com with the subject line, I'd buy that fundraiser to get in touch with us about what you'd like in exchange for your donation. So get at us. Right on. Well, it ain't free to bring you this free content. <laughs> also, freedom isn't free either. Remember that. <laughs> <laughs> but back to Ramsey Lewis. Um, well, yeah, I was just going to say we're starting to wind down here. Does anybody have any closing thoughts on Ramsey Lewis? And does anybody have any recommendations of similar dollar bin records they could pick up? By Ramsey Lewis or just in general? Just in general. Stuff that's kind of on this vibe a little bit that you can still find for $5 or less. Oh, wow. I have to think about that because like we were discussing earlier, you know, a lot of I've been buying records for so long that a lot of what I assume are still $5 or less records. <laughs> yeah, it's changed. It's changed, you know, so it's I don't want to tell somebody, oh, come on, you can get that for a dollar, you know, and it turns out, well, actually, no, you can't. All, look at what's one? Company. What's one though? <laughs> Let me think. What's a, what's a good one in this general vein? That's still really cheap. Uh, I have to really think about that for a second because I'm thinking about other Ramsey Lewis records that are still pretty cheap, like Don't It Feel Good and Salongo. You can still get those. I still I still see them around pretty cheap. But um, And then I might get in trouble if I say some of the later non-numbered Bob James records. But I, Oh, no, we love Bob James. Know, but uh, those, those, I mean, I'm looking at stuff like, you know, Touchdown and Lucky Seven. And, you know, those records are actually as quietly as it's kept, as influential as, as like, you know, the more celebrated Bob James 1, 2, 3. You know, those, mm-hmm. which, you know, nowadays. Heads? Heads. 
You know the Heads yes, record? Yeah, all those records are great. There's great stuff, and, and uh, every single one of them, if you're familiar with a lot of hip-hop, you can put on any one of those Bob James records and be like, oh, that's Special Ed. Oh, that's DJ Premier. Oh, that's, that's yeah. Diggable Planets. Yeah. Oh, that's so-and-so, <laughs> you know? So, um, and they're still super cheap, and you can see, I mean, the tap in, the ones on the tap and do label, you can still even see them for like a buck or two or three, just have at it, you know, for sure. Right on. Yeah. As, as, as one example, as, as one example. Sure. Right. Jeremy and Peter, any, any recommendations for the people? No, I'm putting you on the spot. I don't even know. Cause like the first thing that popped in my mind when I was listening to this is Herbie Hancock, obviously, mm-hmm. but that's not, those aren't cheap. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can still get lucky on headhunters sometimes just because it was so popular. You can find yeah. it, but that's, Anyone that knows what they're doing is going to be getting, you know, $15 plus out of that record. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I used to see, I used to see it a lot because of how much it sold, but, um, lately it's like we were talking, I mean, like if, if nowadays Fleetwood Mac and Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen are getting like 15, 20, 25 or whatever, I mean, Herbie Hancock headhunters, I mean, all bets are off, you know? Right, right. Well, I mentioned before that I'm going to be doing these accompanying uh, Spotify playlists with every episode. So here's a couple records that I've included on there that you can still find for kind of cheap. Jazz Crusaders, Old Socks, New Shoes. You can still find that for $5 or less. And that is a really, really good example of jazz artists just starting to tiptoe into some different styles and a little bit of experimenting. But also, you can buy almost any other Crusaders, Jazz Crusaders record, and it's good. Like Those Southern Nights is a great one if you ever oh, seen Oh, man. That's an amazing record for sure. Yeah. Another podcast alum, Eddie Harris, High Voltage, is yep. a good one to check out. I put Earth, Wind, and Fire, Head to the Sky. That's, yes. like the, that's the record where they really started to blossom, and it happened a little bit yeah. before this. So you can kind of see part of that Chicago, Charles Stepney scene evolving. Yes. Rotary Connection, like we mentioned, always just pick up any record you can find by the Dells, but one specifically from this time period is a record called Freedom Means that has some of the same players. Freedom Means is, is, a, is a master masterpiece. So good. I love so that good. record. Now, yep. now, mind you, you, you guys are saying this, you're mentioning these Dells and uh, Stephanie-related records from a Midwestern perspective, and as a New Yorker, let me tell you, a lot of those cadet and chess records they are still findable in the Midwest. Like if you're yeah. in Illinois, Michigan, Ohio, you can get those records. But on the East Coast, if you find them, they will be charged accordingly. They used to be a little bit easier to find. But man, I wish I was in Michigan, Ohio, and Illinois just to like find all those records. But if, our, if any listeners are in that part of the country... By all means, get every one of those cadet records you can. Absolutely. That was my favorite thing to do at record shows in the area, you know, where it's like 95% white dealers selling white records to white people. Yeah. I would just go yeah. through the bins and find all the cadet records that I could oh, buy for man. cheap. Oh, oh, man. That's where it's at. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, there's, there's some Dorothy Ashby records. There's that one Dorothy Ashby record with the white cover on cadet. You never see that for, like, under a lot of money you know what i mean so but I'm well sure. you, you don't see dorothy ashby out out there too much anymore either i mean i some of the you know older record collectors in the area that i've talked to have told me about finding copies of dorothy ashby records all the time in the dollar bin decades ago which is yeah. insane anyway last couple people i put on this list the cti george benson records are a great way to go i put yeah. uh george benson's version of take five from bad benson because dave brubeck was actually a big influence on ramsey lewis as well yes. and then another podcast alum johnny hammond smith if you pick yeah. up his mm-hmm. his record wild horses rock steady there's a lot of really really cool synthesizer experimentation on there similar to this record and then finally a good friend of Ramsey Lewis, Dr. Lonnie Smith. His records can be a little hard to find for cheap, but just buy all of them when you can. They're they're so good. They're so good. They're- you know what? In in season one, we didn't really ever say what record we'd be featuring on the next episode, uh, maybe once or twice at most. But we're now setting a precedent that I'm going to tip my hand here 
and say that one that comes to mind is Ronnie Law's Pressure Sensitive. Oh, uh, yeah, it's a great one. That's an essential record because of the... Well, and that's what I'm planning I'm planning on bringing oh, next yeah. week. Yeah, that's a great one. It's got, it's got Tidal Wave on it, and it's got Always There on it. Those two tracks alone make it a must-have. Yeah. And especially being as cheap, cheap as it is. Another guy we might mention here is Gabor Zabo. Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, he's got a couple of records. I mean, nowadays, Dreams goes for a fuck ton of money. Yeah. But... He's got a couple on Blue Thumb. There's one called Magical Connection that I highly recommend that shouldn't be too expensive. And there's one that I still see cheap, which I don't know why, which is High Contrast, which is the one where he's playing guitar with Bobby Womack throughout the entire record. And most of the songs are actually written by Bobby Womack. And the original version of Breezin is on that record. Mm -hmm. And you can still, I've seen that record sealed for cheap. So that's another one I would say as well. Excellent. Well, all strong suggestions. That's a lot of suggestions, but a lot of strong suggestions. <laughs> I think we, uh, we've, give, we've given our listeners a lot to dig into, and that's what we're here to do. My mind is dizzy with names right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, Greg, we really want to thank you so much for joining us and bringing your... Thanks for having me. Bringing your knowledge. <laughs> <Like> knowledge. <laughs> Dropping the knowledge. <laughs> Thanks for having me. This is exactly. this really fun and easy. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, we'd love to have you back sometime. Thanks for yeah, joining us. Anytime, anytime. Thank you, guys. Hell yeah. And do uh, you have any any material online or anything you'd like to uh, give a shout out to while we're here? Well, basically, I'm not one for like necessarily posting mixes on online every other day. I do have a handful of mixes that I've made over the last six months. I call them love togetherness and distancing. And I call them my COVID shut-in mixes of me just sitting here going through records and just like making these like delicious mixes. And I've actually been um, selling the downloads. I don't actually post them online just because like we're all broke and we don't have any money, but, uh, <laughs> but I do have these. So, um, Anybody can reach out to me, the real Greg Kaz at Gmail, and I'll gladly send it to you for a small fee. And then uh, follow my Instagram. You know, that, that's the battle cry of the day. <laughs> my Instagram feed is basically daily nerd outs on different records of all genres. Like, <clears throat> I just show a picture of the front, back, inside, and drop the needle on a few cuts and write a whole long thing about the record itself. And uh, that's the entirety of my Instagram page. So um, the real Greg uh, at the real Greg Kaz, all separated by underscore. And that's C A Z for Kaz. Yeah, C A Z. Kaz. Yeah. The real Greg Kaz, C A Z, separated by underscores. That's me on Instagram. And if you just run down my page, you can see all these album covers. Click on any of them, you'll see what I have to say about it, and then you like you'll also get like you know a little sample of a bunch of facts from it. Yeah, I definitely need verifiable proof that you have heard all this music that you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, well, go to my Instagram page and you'll find out. And then, of course, if, if you... I'll scope it. If, if anybody's been on now, on now Playing, also has a bit of an idea. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, thanks for spending some time with us. And I, I, what are we going to end on here? What's the, what's the uh, What are we going out on for this episode? My love for you. <laughs> I was going to say, I usually go out on the closing track, which was is Where Is The Love, but we got to play My Love For You. It's too good of a song not to. Yeah. Also, I just want to say, I, I just, I love all the keyboard stuff he did in here. I don't know how many tracks it is, but there's so many points of this song where if you are in a place where you can listen to it on headphones or with like good stereo separation on your speakers, it's, it gets real trippy at times how it just kind of seems to jump back and forth in the stereo mix. Absolutely. All right. This has been another episode of I'd buy that for a dollar. My name is Sean Hartman. I'm Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Peter Cook. I'm Greg Kaz. Thanks for listening, y'all.